I'm Michael Levitin, and this is episode 15 of The Tell. It happens often when I tell a story to my friends that I get to the ending and I tell them whatever my conclusion is, whatever I've learned, and they get kind of upset at me and tell me that I have learned the wrong lesson. That that is <laughs> whatever I've come up with is not the appropriate response to that story. Now, I understand what they're saying, but look, you know, we all have the right to misinterpret our lives. I don't see why I have to be right <laughs> at the end of the story. Um, I find that people are really hung up on this idea that memoirists and people telling a true story in front of you are supposed to be wise. Like at the end, they're supposed to have figured out everything. And I just don't understand it. I find that oppressive. And we would never think that about fiction. In a, in a fiction story, if someone doesn't learn a lesson, we go, oh my God, the character didn't learn a lesson. That resonates with me. Sometimes I don't learn a lesson. Sometimes other people in the world don't learn a lesson. That's like a great fiction device. Lots of bad characters who stay bad or blind, foolish characters that stay foolish. Why can't we be like that in memoir? I don't understand. Um, so, you know, people tell me their stories before they get on stage um, at the tell, but it's chaotic. I don't really know what they're going to do. So sometimes they've told me the story one way and they get on the stage and they have a different tone or they have different ideas in it, or sometimes they get to the ending and the ending's changed and it, it means something else to them. And sometimes people don't like it. People disagree and they get mad. But to me, is that not also an interesting experience, watching someone misinterpret their own life? Why isn't it valuable to watch people be wrong? Um, I see storytelling kind of like in, in gambling, you know, a tell in gambling um, is an accidental way of expressing your hand. You know, uh, a mannerism that shows how you really are feeling. Um, I think that happens in storytelling all the time, that we reveal our true selves. Sometimes people don't like it or they disagree. Uh, but I think that's a beautiful thing to witness. Um, so stories this episode are from Julian Tepper and Kaveh Zahedi. Uh, and you'll see them draw some conclusions that I probably wouldn't have drawn myself. This is episode 15 of The Tell. So it was about six weeks ago, actually. Um, I was having breakfast, and I was Googling myself, you know, naturally. And uh, I saw, not on the first page of Julian Tepper, but on the second, an obituary for Julian Tepper. Uh, clearly not my own obituary. It was in the Washington Post. Um, but I clicked on it, and I saw, finally, Julian Tepper... He's died, and, and I felt pretty good about it. Um, so it really, uh, the story begins five years prior. My partner Jenna and I had started uh, an arts club below our home in Queens. And uh, maybe like two weeks after we opened the doors, we got an email in the club inbox. Uh, it was from someone named Julian Tepper. And the message was good. It said, hey, I'm a visual artist with a big head, which I liked. I appreciate it. And who, who was this person? Who was this Julian Tepper? I mean, it, was, it seemed like a prank, and I, I appreciated the humor. But then it was just three days later, get a message in the club voice mailbox, because uh, Julian Tepper, hey, it's Julian Tepper. Um, down in Washington, but I'm going to be in New York next month, and I want to come by the Oracle Club. I'm thinking maybe February 17th, 20th, 22nd, 23rd, 2 p.m. or 4 p.m. would work for me. Now, you know, I could tell by the sound of the guy's voice, he was not, he was not a young man. He was beyond middle age. Um, 
the whole date thing, throwing dates and times. I mean, I don't know. it wasn't a doctor's office, so it was like, uh, I, I'm not really, I don't really know what I'm doing tomorrow necessarily, but it was the thing that he said next, which left me, you know, kind of off kilter. He said, I'm looking forward to meeting uh, your wife, Jenna, and your son, Silas. Now, I'm deeply, you know, paranoid about uh, most people. And, I, and I'm thinking, this fucking, I'm already seeing, you know, you know, Robert De Niro in uh, Cape Fear, the Max Cady character, like standing outside my window all night, staring in the blinds. Uh, and I tell Jenna, I say, there's this guy out there. His name is also Julian Tepper, I think. And he's, he wants to come by the Oracle Club. And I, I, I'm deeply distrustful of this person. She goes, you know, relax, it's fine. He's probably, he sounds like an old guy. He's lonely, let him come over. Absolutely not. This guy's not, he's not coming near. So I, I, don't, I don't write him back. I don't call him back. And this upsets him. How do I know? Because he proceeds to call me and leave messages and email, Julian, why aren't you calling me back? I thought we were going we to meet. I want to come by the Oracle Club. I'm going to be in New York next month on the 16th and the 20th and the 20th. All this and the emails. And he wants to come by and say hi to my whole family. <laughs> um, so... I sort of practice a don't give an inch. You know, if someone seems like they want to bite your whole head off, or they, if you you don't know, you give an inch, they might just just don't don't engage. So I, you know, I don't. And 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 it, it was good because a month passed and two months passed, and I don't hear from Julian Tepper. But then one day I'm I'm on my brother's Facebook page. I'm looking at some photos, and all of a sudden I look. I'm like. Holy shit, Max is friends with Julian Tepper. <laughs> you know, I, I, I sort of get the deep, dark, sinking feeling, and I think, all right. I, I look at my younger brother's Facebook page. Holy fuck, they're friends too. I go to my dad's Facebook page, they're friends. Julian Tepper has emailed, uh, Facebook friended my entire family. <laughs> And they have all accepted his friends of God's, which is pretty sad, you know? I mean, you would think that, A, they would realize that, like, we're already friends, and, and, and B, like, why, they would ask the question, like, why is Julian's profile picture like some old geezer? <laughs> they don't ask that. They just accept. So, you know, I can't, I'm, I, these, these things kind of frighten me, but I'm, I'm just like, whatever, I would, you know, put him into the deep recesses of the psyche. I'm going to block him out. I'm not going to think about him. And then uh, a couple months later, I, I, I write something for the Paris Review, and I'm looking at the comments, and I see something that says, I don't approve of this piece. <laughs> Signed off by the real Julian Tepper. <laughs> and I think, who the f Fuck is this guy? I, I then I look at like the, the something I'd written on like the Huffington Post and then like the Daily Beast, and he's there. I don't approve of this piece. The real Julian Tepper. I think this fuck, this is like a declaration of war. I mean, I don't know what it is. This is like a professional space. I'm trying to reach readers, and he's confusing them. I think it's like if they bothered to look at the comments, they're thinking. That's strange. He, he wrote the piece, but he doesn't approve of it. 
so that was that was just irritating. I wasn't so much frightened, but just but just irritated. Um, but again, no engagement. More emails, more phone calls, and it's it's you know I could be here talking to you guys. My phone rings. I look. Holy fuck! It's Julian Tepper, and you know just you just don't feel good inside if you're me. But time goes by. Time goes by, and um, and suddenly uh, there's another voicemail. Um, and this was sort of it was getting towards the last ones that I would listen to. He's like, Julian, it's Julian Tepper. I'm picking up my stakes in Washington next week, and I'm moving to Brooklyn. I look forward to meeting you and Jenna and Silas. So I tell Jenna, you know, I'm buying a gun. I mean, this is it. It's like I need a, I need a security system. Do you go to the police? I mean, do the police, do the police care? I, I don't know that they know what to do with this kind of thing. He hasn't done anything except left this, you know, trail of 40 or 50 emails and voicemails which I haven't saved, which he's, you know. Um, she says, calm down, don't worry. I was like, all right, well, you know, you should know what he looks like because he could be standing outside and he might try to eat you. I don't know. It's like <laughs> he's, he's going to be there. He's tenacious. Uh, we just don't, we don't know this person. Um, so Julian moves to Brooklyn, and then, you know, he just, there's the inbox deluge, you know, Julian, I'm in Brooklyn, I thought we were going to meet, I want to come by, 2 p.m. Saturday, what do you think? And, and similar, you know, similar emails, he's, I, um, I just don't, I don't engage. And, uh, and then finally, I, uh, I get an email from him, he says, you know, on May 22nd, I'm going to turn 75, God willing. And I'm going to meet you one way or another. <laughs> now, I'm a fan of Blondie. I know, I know the song, you know. And I'm, uh, I'm pretty, you know, kind of terrified at this point. I mean, Julian Tepper wants to meet me under any, you know, he's, he's one way or another, he's coming after me. But I'm just, I believe in zero engagement. And I, I just, I don't write him back. Um, and then he's, you know, he sends me emails, dying wish, my dying wishes to me. Dying wish, we don't even know each other. I mean, dying wish is like, uh, you know, Niagara Falls or something. I, I don't, I don't know this person, um, but he's, you know, he's, he's putting darkness in my life. I just want him, I want him gone, and, and, you know, I don't reply, and months pass, and suddenly, I mean, I'm aware of this. I'm like, I haven't heard from Julian. Six months, eight months, I haven't, and I'm feeling pretty good about it, and then six weeks ago, I Google my name. So sometimes you want to Google your name for other reasons. And I came upon this. I'm going to read something. This was his obituary in the Washington Post. Julian Tepper, age 76, celebrated attorney passed away on June 26, 2017 as a result of complications following a car accident. He is survived by five children, from two marriages, 
Tepper was born in Washington, D.C., attended Woodrow Wilson High School, and received a bachelor's degree in English from the University of Maryland. He graduated Columbia Law School in 1965. Later, Tepper attended Cambridge University and received an advanced degree in criminology, prisons, and deviant behavior. In the early 1970s, Tepper was the executive director for DC Neighborhood Legal Service Program and the director of the NLADA National Law Office. He handled law reform issues in the areas of prisons, served as negotiator at the Attica Prison in DC jail takeovers, ended sordid practices at the Clockwork Orange Prison, achieved a contested constitutional right to an education suited to the needs of the mentally impaired and otherwise handicapped children and brought a successful practices and conditions case against Willowbrook on Staten Island. From 2004 to 2007, Tepper hosted his own radio program, The Tepper Show. Talk back to the news on WTNT AM radio. The program provided a platform for Tepper's independent mind, witty conversational style, and abundant sense of humor. Tepper was an avid reader, a lover of music, a sports enthusiast, especially for his Washington, D.C. teams, and he was particularly proud of having coached all of his children's soccer teams. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. When I saw the obituary, I was kind of happy. It would mean no more calls in the middle of the day from Julian Tepper that left me cold and sweating. It would mean, you know, no more fear of him showing up outside the Oracle Club, no more Facebook friending my family and commenting on pieces. You know, the world, it just felt a little simpler to me with only one Julian Tepper. <laughs> but Julian Tepper, rest in peace. Um, when I was five in kindergarten, I, it was, I was in the playground one day and it was raining and a kid came up to me and he had an earthworm in his hand and he said, hey, it's raining earthworms. And I was old enough to know that it doesn't really rain earthworms, but I was young enough not to be sure. So I was like, no, it's not. He's like, yeah, it is. Put your hand out. Check it out. So I put my hand out and an earthworm fell in it. And I looked up, and there was no tree or roof or anything. It was just sky. And I was like, oh, I guess it does rain earthworms. And I thought that for quite a while. Um, and then when I was in first grade, I was playing kickball, which I didn't like. And there was a, a girl I did like named Ellen. And she was playing at the monkey bars with her friend. And I just really wanted to be with them and not with these boys. Uh, and I believed in God at this point. And so I was praying to God and I was saying, please, 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 God, please, 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 please have Ellen and her friend come over to me on the kickball field and grab me each with one hand and drag me backwards to the monkey bars. This was my fantasy. 
and I'm praying as fervently as I can, and uh, I keep missing the ball. Um, and my eyes are closed, I'm praying. And all of a sudden, I'm yanked off my feet by both hands, and I'm dragged backwards to the monkey bars by Ellen and her friend. And I was like, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. And you know, you know God obviously exists. Um, and then I tried it again, it didn't work. Um, and I eventually stopped believing in God, and I just figured it was a coincidence. Um, and then in college, I started taking hallucinogens. And I remember the first time I did mushrooms, I think, I was like, I think I have telepathy right now. <laughs> and there was this girl I liked. And I went up to her and I was like, I know what you're thinking. And I started telling her what she was thinking. And she was like freaked out because I think I was right. And she would start to say something and I would finish her sentences for her. And I thought this would impress her, but it didn't. Uh, <laughs> she like never wanted to speak to me again. Um, but you know, I started believing in some kind of thing. Um, and then I had this friend who um, was HIV positive and he was doing all these things to try to heal from that. This was kind of in the early days when cures weren't so common. And he told me that he had read about these psychic surgeons from the Philippines who can like put their hands in your body and they can heal you and they do this crazy thing. And you know, I was just kind of like, oh, cool. And he uh, calls me up one day and he says, hey, the psychic surgeon is in town do you want to come with me? I'm going to go and try to get psychic surgery done on me. And I was like, uh, I don't know. Um, he was like, come on, you should do it. And I was like, uh, okay. And I'd recently uh, sort of, I had a girlfriend and she cheated on me and I was really angry with her. And I was just kind of bummed. And I was like, okay, I'll just go. So I, <laughs> I go to this uh, house and there's a bunch of people in a room and we're waiting and this guy comes in, and he's Filipino, but he, he seems like a used car salesman. He just seems like not at all what you would expect. And at some point, he says, hey, you guys want to see a demonstration? So we're like, OK. So we go into this room, and he tells a woman to lie down on this table. And he sort of pulls up her shirt so we can see her, her belly. And he puts his hand in her belly. And the hand goes all the way in, the skin parts, blood spurting everywhere. And it was freaky, but. It also, there was like an energy in the room that felt like something spirit-ish is happening here. And I, and I was freaked out and I started uh, reciting the Lord's Prayer, which I hadn't done since I was a kid. And I'm just going, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, the kingdom come, what be done the one Thursday. I was really freaked out. And after the demonstration, he takes his hand out, he throws some stuff, some gook into a bucket and the stomach closes up and he wipes it down and she gets up. And we went back in the waiting room. It was me and there were these two women. And we were all freaked out. And I think we were crying. Uh, we just had just seen something that we couldn't understand. And um, they both were Carol Burnett's daughters. Um, <laughs> and then it was my turn. Oh, and he asked you when you get there like to ride on an index card like what your ailment is, like what's wrong with you, like what do you need help with? And I, I didn't have anything wrong with me at the time. I got a lot of things now. But uh, back then, I didn't, except I was really angry at my girlfriend. So I just said, anger? And so he looks at the car and he says, anger, huh? OK. And he puts his hand in my belly and in my chest and in my throat and in my third eye and in my top of my head. And I could 
I can feel his finger in my brain. Like, it's not like, you know, it's not like pressing on a brain. It's like inside your brain. It doesn't hurt at all, but it's a weird feeling. And, and then it's over, and I get up. I don't know what to think. And I go to the bathroom, and I look in the mirror, and I'm like, whoa, you look really handsome today. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been this handsome in my life. And I was like, what is it? What is it? Same face, but what is it? And I was like, oh, I know what it is. There's no anger in my eyes. Like, there's always a little bit of anger in my eyes. I don't know if you can see it. <laughs> it's always there. But it was gone. And I looked like, I looked like Jesus. You know, I did. <laughs> Just no anger. And I took a picture, because I was like, I gotta, I gotta record this. And I'm not angry at my girlfriend at all. Like, I'm just, I don't care, she fucked some guy, so what? Um, I don't know what I was so upset about. Um, <laughs> and like, the next day, I'm like, I'm gonna go to the library and find out more about this guy. So I walk into like a, I'm driving, and there's a library, and I stop, I walk in, and I just walk right up to a, a bookshelf, like I'm just looking for, you know, where am I going to find this section that might have something? And right in front of me, there's a book, Psychic Surgery in the Philippines. And it's all about this guy, Alex Orbito, who had done the thing. So I'm like, this is so weird. Okay. Um, a few days later, I'm mad at my girlfriend again. Like it <laughs> went away. <laughs> but then I'm reading a book about Philip K. Dick. And he's talking about this experience he'd had where um, he'd written a book and then he was at a party and he met somebody who was telling him stuff that was from his book, but that happened to them. And he was freaked out about it. And he was like, what could this possibly mean? And he theorized that maybe all of time is an illusion and that we're really, the real time is 50 AD. That's what time it really is. And Christ is about to return and all of this is just like the, the devil created this illusion to make us think that history happened, but it's really just trying to avoid the fact that Christ is coming back right now. So I read this and I was like, huh, that's interesting. Um, and I, I went to bed with my girlfriend and that night I had a dream and the dream was that there was a psychic in the room and he said, I'm psychic and I'm like, yeah, right. And then I started levitating, and I'm like, okay, okay, you're psychic, please put me down. So he puts me down, and then he turns into a woman in a green dress, and it's Lady Gregory. Lady Gregory was Yates's patron. I've never seen a photo of Lady Gregory, but I'm thinking in the dream, I know that's her face. That's the face of Lady Gregory, who I've never seen in my life. And then Lady Gregory says, let me tell you about death. And she says, Philip K. Dick, is right about time, but he's wrong about 50 AD. It's not 50 AD. <laughs> she says, there's only one moment, and it's the eternal now, and in this moment, eternal now, God is saying, do you accept your divinity? And we're all going, no. <laughs> and that's what time is. Time is just going, no, 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 every moment. <laughs> so I wake up from this dream, and I'm like, oh, okay, I gotta break up now with you. And she's like, why? Because I had this dream. And I've never broken up with anybody. I always wait for them to break up with me. But I was like, OK, I have clarity for once. So I broke up with Elia. Where is this story going? Um, <laughs> so once I was on mushrooms, 
And the room was completely blue. Like everything was blue, like beautiful, beautiful blue light. And suddenly I could see perfectly because I wear glasses, right? And I have bad eyesight. But suddenly I had perfect eyesight. I could see every little thing while I was on mushrooms. I was like, so that's weird. So my eyes aren't inherently short-sighted or whatever. It's just like they can change, like your eyes can change. So I went back to the psychic surgeon and said, could you do my eyes? And he was like, sure. So he put his fingers in my eyeballs. I could feel them wiggling in there. It didn't hurt. Um, There was blood. Um, But it didn't didn't help my eyesight, as you can see. Um, And then I had some friends who were like terminally ill, and I took them, and they died. So whatever he did didn't cure me or anyone I knew, but it did seem to open a doorway to another realm of something. And I, and I think your thoughts create your illnesses, and I think your thoughts create your short-sightedness, and those thoughts are still with me. I still have them. I can't, it's been hard to change my thoughts that are creating this reality that I'm in. But I think that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, okay. If I didn't know better, I'd hang my head right there. If I I didn't know better, I'd follow you up the stairs. Stop saying those sweet things, you know I like to hear. The horns are blowing loud, the bailiff's drawing near. Wasting my time on you If I, I didn't know better But I do There's a hole in what you're saying You've another lover who's been waiting Well, you're hanging around here with me You must be the devil Keeping me out past three But you're the one with the apple Baby, you can't blame me
just heard a live performance by Aram Ray of her song, If I Didn't Know Better. And before that, you heard stories from Julian Tepper and Kaveh Zahedi. Um, and underneath me right now, you're listening to a, a sort of special thing. So, um, you know, Gabriel Galvin and I, who produced this podcast together at his studio, Four Foot Studios in Brooklyn, um, have made all these versions of the Tell theme song here. Usually we make them. Um, but this is a special case where Alex Toth, one of my favorite musicians, went home and made a bunch of versions of it himself where he plays all the instruments and produced it. Um, so uh, I'm so moved that he did this, and I think they're all so beautiful. So um, underneath me right now and coming in a minute, you're going to hear Alex Toth's version of the Tell theme song, Written by a Fool. Um, and uh, if you'd like to find out more about the Tell or come see it live yourself, you can go check out when one is happening, where one is happening at thetellstories.com. Otherwise, thank you for listening. This was episode 15 of The Tell. Oh, baby, I like your story, a story you won't tell. Yeah, I witnessed how it came true, and it's brilliant because it's written by a fool. Oh, yeah, you're quite a character, the boy who broke the rules. You had it all, but you lost your cool, and it's brilliant because it's written by a fool. I still not understand what it meant Don't be so hard on yourself There's nothing you can do To share a story, you got nothing to lose It's brilliant cause it's written by a Oh, I sure am glad that it's not mine